It's hard to imagine that Amy and I have been crawling into this pulpit for 20 years, but this summer is our 20th. And uh, as we did 10 years ago, we have looked back over uh, a decade of sermons and have pulled 10 sermons that we are re-preaching for this summer, especially given all of the events of the day, uh, the news headlines. I had worried a little bit that it might uh, seem uh, out of touch, a little tone deaf to go back and pull old sermons for this summer. Amy and I have both been amazed at the sermons that we have found and the themes that we have found that are still appropriate for today. Uh, I guess as things change, so many things don't change. So many things remain the same. So many of our great issues remain the same. The truth is they re remain the same since the biblical day, since scripture was written. Prophets have always spoken to the issues of the human heart, which unfortunately don't change even as our technology advances. And so we look today at one of those issues my sermon is entitled First Person Singular and a Theology of Y'all. First Person Singular and a Theology of Y'all. And I took that uh, sermon title from two texts. The first is from the book of Philippians. Paul, writing, uh, writing as he had uh, established a new congregation in Philippi, and then he wrote back to them. Uh, this was part of his instruction as he encouraged the churches to which he had uh, visited, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Think we could use some of that advice today? Let each of you look not to your own interest, but to the interest of others. The second text, kind of the main text for the sermon, comes from the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote 2,600 years ago. I've told you so many times, and I think you can't really understand the Old Testament if you don't understand the Babylonian exile, that time when Babylon had come in and overthrown the nation of Israel, wiped out the, the, the cities, um, tore down the temple. It was a great destruction for the nation of Israel, destroyed their blessed temple. And to, to make matters worse, they, they carried off most of the people, all the people who were the leaders and the powerful and the educated, took them into exile into Babylon, marched them hundreds of miles to the east, and there they lived. And, and there developed a theology at that time that is important to the whole Old Testament. It's a theology that points to liberation, a time of freedom, and when will that freedom come and what will it look like? There's a battle between two prophets that we read about. One prophet was Hananiah. And he said to the people in Babylon, oh, don't worry, people. Don't even unpack your bags, people. God's going to bring you back. This isn't going to be bad. Just hang on. God will bring you back in just a few years. That was a popular message, but it was wrong. And Jeremiah, the prophet, said, God's going to bring us back, but it's going to be 70 years. Two generations, you're going to be there. And rather than keeping yourselves pure and untouched by the Babylonians, rather than keeping yourselves to yourself, you need to seek the welfare of the city. Let your children marry their children. These were devastating words, 
hard words because Babylon represented pagan theology. They represented a different racial uh, group. And here's Jeremiah saying to the people, seek the welfare of the Babylonians. Marry your daughters off to their sons and their sons off to your sons off to their daughters. Seek the welfare of the city for in that is God's welfare. And then uh, Jeremiah went on to read these, to say these words. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place only when 70 years are done. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper. The sermon is first person singular and a theology of y'all. You've heard the ancient story. Now I need to tell you that I really don't have some surreptitious plan to use my vocation as a bully pulpit for proper English grammar. Though it's not uncommon for me to mention grammar in one of my sermons, you see proper English just got ground into my head growing up as I did with two college English majors for parents. My father would often say, um, Russ, could we talk about that sentence? And then he would tell me how I had misused the grammar in that sentence. And since I'm beginning this sermon today talking about grammar, can I share with you my latest, my personal pettest of peeves about grammar? It's like grammar obscenity. I liken it to like English language pornography. And I hear it all the time. My pettest of peeves is the use of the word eyes. Not eyes, like two eyes in your head, but like eyes house or eyes car. I as a possessive. Now, I don't think I've actually ever heard anybody say eyes house needs repainted. But I've heard plenty of people say Amy and eyes house needs repainted. No, 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 please don't ever say I's house needs to be repainted. It's never correct. You would never say I's car, so don't say Amy and I's car is out in the driveway. I, I hope if you don't learn anything else today, you'll learn this, and maybe you'll take the pledge, say it with me, I will never embarrass myself by using I as a possessive. It's my house. So it's Amy and my house. It's Amy and my marriage, or it's Amy's and my pronoun usage in preaching. Okay, got that off of my chest now. So let me begin, but I have to begin with grammar because the grammar is essential to understanding this text. You see, those of us who do not read Hebrew could easily read Jeremiah's message as an affirmation that God has specific designs for just me, for just what I pray for, to offer special blessings to me, to bestow health and wealth and prosperity as a divine gift just for me. Because God said, I just read it to you, I know the plans I have for you, Russ. Plans to prosper you, Russ. Second person, singular, you. Only that's not what God said. Not at all. It's in the grammar. 
If we could read Hebrew, we would understand that if God were from Brooklyn, Jeremiah's prophecy might have sounded like this. I know the plans I have for you guys. If God were my grandmother, she would have concluded, I know the plans I have, plans to prosper you ones. That's what my grandmother said, you ones. If God were from the American South, all of us would understand the text better. For what God said is, I know the plans I have for y'all. Plans to prosper y'all. All of you. The pronouns in this text are in the second person. You remember I, you, he, she, it, second person, you, but they are all plural. God's plans are to prosper y'all. Evangelicalism in America and that Pentecostal penchant for the altar call has done a real number on us, I think. You know, the preacher asked, brother, are you saved? And when you place the individualism of that kind of revivalism in the context of a burgeoning American dream, the two grow up together, revivalism and Americanism. So you can understand how our theology and our ideology have developed side by side in first person singular. It's all about me. Theologically, my relationship with God, God's blessings for me, ideologically, my rights, my freedom. Together, God blessing me in the American dream. First person singular. American capitalism and our representative democracy and the American promise of individual freedom and individual rights offer unprecedented power to the human person. It is a beautiful thing when that dream is fulfilled. And it is cruel irony when it is not. Now the only point I'm trying to make is that a beautiful theology which calls individuals for, to responsibility for their own spirituality. That's what revivalism is. Take care of your own spirituality. And a powerful ideology which offers us the sky is the limits to productivity and prosperity, those individualisms can be twisted, as I'm afraid they have been, into a secularized American religion that says it's all about me. First person singing. My rights, my money, my house, my security, my guns, my God, my salvation. In theology and politics, we have made it first person singular. It's all about I, myself, and me. Well, I hate to break it to you this morning, but it's not all about you. The salvation of your individual soul, the answer to your personal prayers, the receipt of God's bountiful blessings bestowed specifically on you. God didn't give the quarterback the Super Bowl win. I don't care how much he believes it. God doesn't want to give you a miracle today as opposed to some other poor soul who isn't as righteous or as faithful or who didn't give as large a contribution to the sorry televangelist who is peddling that snake hole. It's not about you. We need another 
revival in this country. We need a revival called y'allism. Now, if this sounds like bad news to you, I think that's just another indicator of how deeply your religion has been accommodated to American values instead of immersed in Jesus' message. The fact that God cares about y'all, about all, that doesn't exclude you, but it does have some pretty disturbing ramifications if we take the biblical witness seriously. No, the winning touchdown wasn't directly from Jesus. The reprieve from cancer wasn't just divine intervention with your specific address on it. And all that money that you've got saved in your bank account, well, it might not all be yours either. The Bible affirms that all blessings are from God. The book of James says every good and perfect gift is from above. But the consistent biblical language of blessing speaks of stewardship, which means it's not ours to begin with. We are just stewards. We are just managing God's world and God's time and God's resources including our money. We are just stewards. It's not our stuff to begin with. Now, for what purpose have we been blessed, according to the Bible? For one and only one reason, and that is so that we might be a blessing to others. God did not choose Abraham or Moses or David alone. You, as an individual, God chose y'all, the nation of Israel. Salvation itself is a corporate, a collective, a communal concept. Many Christians emphasize the personal nature of salvation. Are you saved? But the Hebrew word that comes to us as salvation is bigger than that. It's about God making a nation, saving a so we talk about social justice. Social justice. Believing the great power of the gospel isn't individual salvation, but the transformation of the whole society. For what purpose did God bless the nation of Israel and us? So that the nation might become a blessing the bearer of God's goodwill to all. It's a theology of y'all. We as a nation, it seems to me, have not fully reckoned with the incredible power of the gift of freedom. We who are parents know that freedom must be earned, that it is a mark of maturity, that with rights come responsibilities you know, you don't just hand the car keys and the credit card to your brash 10-year-old when he childishly declares he's running away from home. But at this point in our national history, I wonder if that is exactly how we are treating freedom. Freedom is a gift, but it's not a simple birthright. The incessant whine about individual rights, which masks itself as patriotism. No pun intended, I used that word masks six years ago. 
the incessant whine about individual rights which masks itself as patriotism sounds on closer examination like the juvenile boast of an angry child. It's mine. I can do it myself. The followers of Jesus know it's not just mine. And God knows we all need to listen. When I preached this sermon in 2014, another of our nation's sad mass shootings was in the news. And I said, I don't know anywhere this issue is more apparent than in the current battle over guns. The pro-gun lobby, and I hate to use that word because it has such political connotations, but I believe it is just that. The lobby wants to make this a simple issue of individual rights. This is America. The Second Amendment says I have the right to bear arms, so my access to arms should be unregulated and unlimited, period. Well, this is America. And the Second Amendment does affirm the right to bear arms, but as the Apostle Paul said to the church in ancient Corinth, all things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Do not seek your own advantage, but that of others. This is not the United States of the Wild West. And it is not anti-American or anti-Second Amendment or anti-freedom to say, given the bizarre, shameful, outrageous violence so-called free Americans are inflicting on each other because of our love affair with the gun, it's not anti-Second Amendment to say something needs to change. Everyone in this country does have a right to own a gun. Everyone in this country ought also to have a right not to own a gun and be able to enjoy their liberty also. The human spirit thirsts for and thrives in freedom. And the American experiment with a free market and a free political process is unprecedented in human history. The advance of the human race, which has resulted from that freedom, is unquestioned. But freedom, interpreted just as radical individualism, is dangerous. The achievements due to American individualism are sometimes heroic, yet our murder rate is higher than nearly any other industrialized nation. And the murder rate, when I read that statistic six years ago, was at a three-year low. And one in three African Americans and one in four children throughout this entire country lives in poverty. Now these numbers may be acceptable to proponents of the American ideology. They might be willing to tolerate the poverty, the violence, the inequality in order to defend the potential which exists theoretically for all, the great potential that's made manifest in those few who do succeed. But that kind of individualism which inevitably leaves this many of God's children behind, that kind of individualism does not represent the values of Jesus. Am I free? Do I have a right? These are not the questions the followers of Jesus ought to be asking. The questions from Jesus are what am I doing with my freedom? And how are my rights benefiting others, building them up? This conversation about masks today 
is maddening. People are angry all over the place, shouting down their fellow citizens. If I don't want to wear a mask, by God, I don't have to. It's my right. And that's true if it's just about you. But Dr. Anthony Fauci, now famous for his work on the coronavirus task force, says you have an individual responsibility to yourself and you have a societal responsibility. Because if we want to end this outbreak, we've got to realize that we are part of the process. Thank you, Dr. Fauci. It's not just about you. Several years ago, in a conversation about politics, the topic turned to social security. In dialogue, we wondered together if there would be anything left in that fund when I retire or when my children retire. And I made the casual comment that maybe people who didn't really need those retirement funds should decline from taking them, which might make more money available to the Americans who do count on that retirement plan to literally sustain them day to day. And immediately, laughter erupted in the room. I mean instant belly laughter, the kind that quickly made me embarrassed. Obviously, I had said something foolish, naive. It's their money. They work for it. It's theirs. Now, my, my comment was not a policy recommendation. I suppose it would be political suicide for anyone to ever suggest such a thing. And one visit to Cuba will make you recognize the dehumanizing effects of socialized everything. I'm not a communist. But that laughter will stay with me for a long time. The laughter and my embarrassment at trying to participate in the American system, which I value so greatly, while trying to think bigger than just me and what is mine. After all, we call it social security, right? Not personal security, individual security, social security. What I was feeling was the tension between American values and the first person singular, which says it's all about me, and the values of Jesus, which says to whom much is given, much more will be required. I don't know how that tension ever gets worked out in the American political life, but I think it must be the prayer of the American Christian church that Christians at least learn to recognize that there is a tension. The American dream says, I have plans to prosper you if you're that way. God says, I have plans to prosper y'all. My friend, the late Dr. Ken Godwin taught me the word communitarian, which refers specifically to a body of academic work produced over the last 40 years by writers challenging the philosophy of John Rawls. Now, I'm not sure I use the word correctly, that what I am espousing is technically communitarianism in that academic sense, but I like the word communitarian. And what I mean by, is it, by, it, by using it is that American values, at least as they are popularly interpreted, are written in the first person singular. But Jesus teaches us what the Bible knows through and through, that if we have any real future, it will be a communitarian future, fostered only by a theology of y'all. May it be so.